on Saturday the 18th of September 1999, 17-year-old Victoria Hall and her best friend Gemma Algar went out dancing in the town of Felixstowe in the southeast of England. They left the Bandbox nightclub at approximately 2am and began the two-mile walk home to nearby Trimley St Mary, talking and laughing as they strolled along. They went their separate ways just a few hundred metres from Victoria's home, but Victoria would not be seen alive again. A week later, her naked body would be found by a dog walker along a secluded farm track some 25 miles from her home. The police would receive over 2,000 calls from the public in the week following the discovery of Victoria's body and followed up on dozens of leads. They would ultimately arrest the suspect, a man who had been in the Bandbox nightclub at the same time as Victoria on the night she went missing and who lived only a few hundred metres from her family home in Trimley St Mary. But despite the police officer's insistence that they had the right man, the jury at his trial seen it differently and he was acquitted of murder. In the years that followed, a new team reinvestigated the case and new evidence would come to light that perhaps pointed to a new suspect, a man who was convicted of several other murders in the local area and who was sentenced to life in prison in 2008, some nine years after Victoria's murder. But was he responsible? Did it fit his modus operandi? Or did the police have the right man all along? Or could it be that someone else entirely was responsible? This is the officially unsolved murder of Victoria Hall. Before getting into the case, just a quick note about the show. The Silent Evidence is a fortnightly true crime podcast focusing on missing persons, unsolved murders, or cases in which there is some controversy surrounding a conviction. It is hosted by me, Alexander Knox. It can be found across multiple platforms including iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube and many more. If you have questions, case suggestions or just want to get in touch, navigate to www.thesilentevidence.com Tweet me at the silent F pod, that's at T-H-E-S-I-L-E-N-T-E-V-P-O-D. Find me on Instagram at The Silent Evidence or search for The Silent Evidence Podcast on Facebook. The Silent Evidence is a complete one-man show, so if you enjoy it and would like to contribute to its continuation, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The page can be found at www.patreon slash thesilentevidence. And finally, please subscribe, like, rate or review on whichever platform you're listening on. Part 1. Introduction Victoria Hall was born in Ipswich in the southeast of England on the 3rd of October 1981. She grew up in a small detached house in the East Suffolk village of Trimley St Mary with her father Graham, her mother Lorinda and younger brother Stephen. Her father was a book agent and her mother worked in a local stationery shop and both were active in the local community. Graham ran the local under-16s football team, the Trimley Red Devils, for whom son Stephen played 
and Lorinda was the leader of the Walton's Church Discoverers Children's Group that both Vicky and Stephen were members of. Vicky had a golden smile that could light up a room and had a real passion for music, especially jazz, ballet and dance. She was described by friends as lively, a happy girl who was also a loyal friend and good fun to be around. Her teachers described her as hard-working, trustworthy and a good student. She attended Orwell High School in nearby Felixstowe, just a 10-minute bus ride away, where she studied for A-levels in sociology, business studies and English, and she had hopes of going on to university to study for a degree in sociology. It was at Orwell High School that she discovered a love of performing arts and really fell in love with music and dancing. She even formed a girl band with some friends, which they named Energy, and made pop videos of themselves dancing to various pop songs, even winning a local talent competition in Suffolk. One of these friends was Gemma Algar, and Vicky and her were so close that they were like sisters. They spent every minute of every day together, and if they were ever apart, they would be talking on the phone together, they were so inseparable. In 1998, at the age of 17, she started a part-time job working in a clothes store in Felixstowe while still attending high school. The money she was earning allowed her to start saving for driving lessons and she began taking ballet lessons in the evenings after school. Vicky enjoyed all kinds of dancing and she and her friends took to going out at the weekends to visit the nightclubs in the Felixstowe area. Initially, her parents were reluctant to let her go, but finally relented, coming to the conclusion that she was just weeks away from her 18th birthday and the freedom that that would bring. They were comforted by the fact that Vicky didn't drink alcohol and simply wanted to attend for the love of music and dancing. Part 2. The Case On Saturday the 18th of September 1999, Vicky and Gemma went for a night out dancing in Felixstowe. On that Saturday evening, the girls visited the Bandbox nightclub and danced the night away in there, leaving at approximately 2am. They walked to a local takeaway shop to buy some chips and then decided to walk the two miles back home to Trimley St Mary as they didn't have enough money left to take a taxi. They took their shoes off to walk home more comfortably and laughed and sang their way along. The two girls went their separate way at the junction of Trimley High Street and Falconer's Way, just a few hundred yards from Vicky's home. They made promises to call one another on the phone the following morning, but Vicky would not be seen alive again. At 8am the following morning, her parents noticed that she wasn't in bed. After contacting Gemma, and discovering that she hadn't spent the night at her house, they grew extremely concerned and contacted the police to report her missing. The missing persons case quickly gained momentum and appeals were made for Vicky or any witnesses to come forward. Vicky was described as 5 foot 1 with blonde hair and striking blue eyes. She was wearing a black dress and a tan-coloured jacket and was carrying a small black oval-shaped purse. The police's fears for Vicky's safety grew after interviewing her best friend. 
Gemma said that shortly after she parted ways from her, sometime around 2.20am, she heard screams coming from the direction Vicky would have been walking in. After canvassing the neighbourhood, several residents in the area told police that they too had heard screams at approximately the same time. Neither Gemma nor any of the neighbours reported the screams to the police at the time, with Gemma believing it was most likely kids messing around. One of the residents also said they heard the sound of a car with a loud exhaust driving off at approximately 2.30am. Detective Superintendent Roy Lambert, leading the search, said, quote, I am extremely concerned for Vicky's safety now. One can only interpret the screams as suggesting there was some violence subjected to her, or she has been abducted against her will. Vicky's father, Graham, aged 45, told the press that he and his wife were doing their best to be positive, to remain strong for their 15-year-old son, Stephen, and to support Gemma, who was absolutely distraught and blaming herself for Vicky's disappearance. He told the assembled media, quote, I just want to see her walk through the door. I want her to come in and sit there and moan at me. Asked if he thought she had been subjected to harm or abducted, he replied, quote, We are praying that the scenario is that she has been abducted. Please, please, can they let her go or ring the police to put her somewhere where we can go and get her? The police confirmed that they were already investigating the rape of a 19-year-old woman near the Bandbox nightclub that took place a week earlier, and Detective Superintendent Lambert said he couldn't rule out a link between that attack and Vicky's disappearance, though he did stress that there were no obvious similarities. Staff at the nightclub had been warning young women not to walk home alone. They also confirmed that they had received a report from a young woman walking home from the bandbox the previous night who reported that she had been followed by a vehicle. The car sped off when the driver realised she was phoning the police, but she managed to get a partial number plate beforehand. In the 48 hours immediately after Vicky's disappearance, the police received over 200 calls and had 50 officers working on the case. They brought in a helicopter and sniffer dogs in an effort to locate Vicky, but no significant clues pointed to her whereabouts. However, that seemed to have changed when five days later, on the 23rd of September 1999, the police had announced that at 5.25am that morning, they had arrested a 21-year-old man at his home in Ipswich in connection with Vicky's disappearance. Forensic officers visited her family home to gather items of her clothing for comparative tests with items found at the suspect's home. Later that day, the man was named as Christopher L., a former boyfriend of Vicky's. He was questioned for 18 hours before being released on bail without charge, pending further inquiries. His solicitor, Tim Ridyard, released a statement saying that Mr L had cooperated fully and was confident that further inquiries by police would eliminate him from the investigation. He stated, quote, Mr L categorically denies any involvement whatever in Vicky's disappearance. He has cooperated fully with police officers 
in their investigation and has answered all questions put to him in interview. He will continue to assist the police in any way he can. A police spokesperson confirmed that they were conducting a search of the home of Mr L, shared with his mother, and that they had taken his car away for tests. They also confirmed that a specialist search team from the Royal Military Police was to be drafted in to assist in the inquiry. However, as events unfolded, this would prove unnecessary. On the early evening of Friday the 25th of September, Jim Armour was walking his dog along a secluded farm track near his home in Creeting St Peter, some 25 miles away from Trimley St Mary. It was a track he walked down often, but he hadn't done so for a couple of weeks as heavy rain had made it very wet and sodden. After half a mile, his dog started growling at something lying in a water-filled ditch close to the track. Initially, Mr Armour thought it may have been a mannequin, but he was disturbed enough to return home quickly and told relatives that were staying with him at the time what he thought he may have seen. They returned up the track altogether and confirmed that it was no mannequin, but the naked body of a young woman. The police confirmed that it was the body of Vicky Hall. The cause of death was not immediately obvious, but they confirmed that they were treating it as murder. They began house-to-house inquiries in the Creeting area and removed a burnt-out car found about a mile away to see if it could be linked to the body. The car was determined to have been a 1989 red Subaru estate car and had been set alight the day after Vicky's disappearance. With Mr Armour stating that he had not walked along the secluded track for a couple of weeks, it seemed very possible the car may have been used to dispose of Vicky's body that same day, with it not being discovered until Mr Armour walked by. But unfortunately, the ferocity of the fire had made it impossible to recover any forensic evidence. The car was traced to a garage in Rosmarch, South Yorkshire, who sold it for cash to a man with a South Yorkshire accent, who was white, in his mid-thirties, five foot six inches tall, of medium build, with fair to light brown hair, and who gave his name as Paul Sanderson. An appeal was launched for Paul Sanderson to come forward, or for anyone that knew him to call the police, but no one ever did. Vicky's family were distraught, and were being comforted by a specialised police bereavement team. The following evening, a minute's silence was held at the bandbox, which was impeccably observed, and local taxi firms made extra taxis available to ensure no one had to walk home. The police mingled with customers in the bandbox nightclub, desperate to dig up leads. A church service was held on the Sunday after the discovery of Vicky's body. Reverend Rod Cork said the community was hurt and broken by the undiluted evil that had taken Vicky away and paid tribute to the strength of Vicky's parents and brother in bearing up to the impossible heartbreak. They were, understandably, not up to facing the media or making statements, but instead wrote a letter to the community to express their gratitude, and it was published 
in the Ipswich Evening Star newspaper. They wrote, quote, We would like to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the huge support we have received in this time of great tragedy for our family. We have been greatly moved by everyone's support, particularly from the community in Trimley and Felixstowe, and of course, from our family and friends. Without this support, the tragedy would have been impossible for us to bear. The community's support, together with the care, hard work and dedication of the police, has kept us going. We can't thank you enough. In the 48 hours after the discovery of Vicky's body, the police said that the local community had given them a tremendous response and they had received over 500 calls. Within a week, this would be over 2,000 calls. Detective Superintendent Lambert said, quote, As Vicky was found naked, one of the main lines of inquiry at the moment is to trace the clothes she was wearing when she went missing. I would appeal for anyone finding her black dress, brown jacket, sandals or purse to contact the police immediately. A search of bins throughout the area failed to find the clothes and indeed they have never been recovered. The post-mortem result proved inconclusive with no certain cause of death being attributed. However, detectives were in no doubt this was a case of murder and the pathologist stated asphyxiation was the most likely cause of death. They also confirmed that it was not possible to say for sure if Vicky had been sexually assaulted or not. On the 13th of November 1999, a memorial service was held for Vicky at St Martin's Church, which was attended by 400 people. The service was relayed outside the church and onto video screens set up in a neighbouring church as it was not big enough to contain everyone who wanted to pay their respects. It concluded with Vicky's parents Graham and Lorinda and brother Stephen lighting a candle in her memory. On the 14th of December 1999, a police spokesperson revealed the charges against Vicky's ex-boyfriend Christopher L would be dropped. In January of the following year, they revealed that they had arrested three people in connection to Vicky's murder. A 22-year-old man was arrested on suspicion of murder at his home on the outskirts of Felixstowe, and a 21-year-old woman and a 23-year-old man were arrested on suspicion of attempting to pervert the course of justice. It's not clear what evidence led the police to identify these three suspects, but ultimately all three were released and charges dropped. A year later, in December 2000, the police arrested yet another man in connection with the murder, and this time the arrest would stick and lead to a murder trial. A local businessman, 27-year-old Adrian Bradshaw, had been in the Bandbox nightclub on the night of Vicky's disappearance, and he had been questioned by the police at the time. He told officers that he left earlier in the evening and had taken a taxi back home to his house in Trimley St Mary, not far from where Vicky lived. However, after following up with the taxi company Mr Bradshaw used, the police discovered that the driver actually dropped him off at approximately 2.20am 
not at his home, but several hundred metres away at the intersection of Falconer's Way and Trimley High Street. This was the same approximate time and location at which Vicky and Gemma would have been passing by. When questioned about this discrepancy, Mr Bradshaw claimed he had drank 10 pints of beer and several vodkas that night and hadn't so much lied during his initial interview but simply estimated the time he had left the club and assumed the taxi had dropped him off at his front door although he had no real memory of it. It was noted that Mr Bradshaw drove a Porsche and the police felt it could have been the exhaust from this car that a witness had heard on the night of Vicky's disappearance at around about the same time as the screams were heard. Investigating the Porsche, they found 10 grains of soil on the accelerator pedal and sent them off for analysis. The analysis came back suggesting that the composition of the soil in the car was consistent with the soil at the disposal site. Taking all of this together, Adrian Bradshaw was charged with murder and remanded in custody until such time as a trial was arranged. Part 3. The Trial The trial began almost a year later in November 2001 at Norwich Crown Court. Michael Lawson QC prosecuting told the jury of seven men and five women that Mr Bradshaw had lied to the police about his movements on the night of Vicky's disappearance and that soil from the disposal site was found in his car. He called soil expert Professor Kenneth Pye from London University to the stand who testified that the soil, quote, bore a striking similarity to the soil in the ditch that Vicky was found in. Mr Bradshaw's defence lawyer, Simon Nichols QC, called his own expert, geologist Dr Andrew Moncrief, who contested Professor Pye's analysis and told the court that the soil could have come from several other places throughout East Anglia. In any event, Mr Bradshaw didn't contest that the soil could have come from the area in the vicinity of the disposal site. He ran a local newspaper in which he often contributed articles himself and claimed that he, in the company of his girlfriend, visited the disposal site in the days after Vicky's body was discovered to take photos and conduct research for an article for the newspaper. Witnesses were called to testify about the scream or screams heard on the night of the disappearance. Best friend Gemma, then aged 19, told the court how the two girls walked home from Felixstowe and had taken their high-heeled shoes off to do so. Fighting back the tears, she said, quote, We were chatting. Then Vicky said she would phone me when she got up the next morning and walked off up the road. I crossed the road on the other side and I said, You will probably hear me saying ouch all the way home. She just said what? And I said it again and she laughed. She went on to say, quote, Shortly afterwards I heard a scream. It was two kind of high-pitched screams. I thought it was just somebody messing about. I didn't think anything else of it that night. Mrs Holly Cheney, who lived near the Hall family, told the court she was at home awake 
in the early hours of the 19th September 1999 and heard a scream and the sound of a car with a throaty exhaust driving off. She said, quote, From what I can recall, there was one scream that I heard. Then I heard a car. It sounded like something out of a horror film. It was a female scream and it was just a high-pitched shriek. It was pointed out to the jury that Mr Bradshaw's sports car had a faulty exhaust at the time, giving it a very distinctive sound. Another neighbour, Michael Watts, told the court, quote, I heard a scream. It was very harrowing. I don't really know how to describe it. I was sat outside in my garden with a Labrador, and the Labrador got up, put his tail between his legs, and went back in through the patio doors. The court then heard the tapes of Mr Bradshaw's interviews with the police, in which he described his movements on the evening of the disappearance, and his version of the timeline. The prosecution pointed out the discrepancies to the jury. He denied having seen Vicky Hall during the evening, and said he went straight to bed once he got home from the nightclub. He denied any involvement in Vicky's murder. Summing up, Mr Lawson QC told the jury that Mr Bradshaw had been dropped off by a taxi at the same time and at the same place that Vicky would have been walking by. He alleged they may have walked a short distance together towards their respective homes before Mr Bradshaw attacked her and forced her into his Porsche before driving off toward Creating St Peter where the body was later discovered. In defence, Simon Nichols QC told the jury that there was no evidence that his client was involved in Vicky's murder. There was no motive, there were no witnesses and no forensic evidence of Vicky ever having been in his car. He reminded them that the soil found on the accelerator pedal could have come from anywhere in the county. After a trial lasting two weeks, the jury deliberated for 90 minutes before finding Adrian Bradshaw not guilty by a unanimous decision. Mr Nichols QC said, quote, He has spent a year of his life in prison come Christmas. A jury took just over one hour to acquit. It vindicates the fact that he has always protested his innocence throughout this whole investigation. Now, after a long and traumatic period in his life, justice has very clearly been done. Mr Bradshaw extended his sympathies to Vicky's family, buried his head in his hands when the verdict was announced, before hugging friends and relatives who had been at the trial throughout. Detective Superintendent Roy Lambert told reporters, quote, I am very, very disappointed with the verdict. Our job is to obtain as much evidence as we possibly can and place it before the court. I believe in this case we have done that. I was surprised that the jury came back so quickly. Vicky's mother, Lorinda, said, quote, Nothing has changed. We have lost Victoria and nothing will ever change that whatever happens. I don't think anyone could put into words how I feel today. Graham added, quote, I think we were expecting the decision, particularly when the jury returned so quickly. In the end, it was inconclusive. Whether Adrian Bradshaw was found guilty or not really made very little difference to us. 
unless someone actually owns up to their actions on that night and tells us exactly what happened. Well, that's the only little bit of help we could have. Victoria will never be with us again. We have got to live with that, as has the murderer. He knows who he is, and he's got to live with it too. It seemed that the police had exhausted every lead they had, and they said they were not looking at anyone else in connection with Vicky's murder. The case went cold. Part 4. The Reinvestigation In September 2019, on the 20th anniversary of Vicky's death, Suffolk Police announced that the case was being reinvestigated by a new team of detectives, codenamed Operation Avon, and was being led by Detective Chief Inspector Caroline Miller, who stated, quote, Suffolk Police has not given up, and will never give up, on catching the person or persons responsible for Victoria's murder. Suffolk Police again issued images of the dress, jacket and shoes that Victoria was wearing the last time she was seen, and also a wooden hair slider that had not previously been released. Additionally, detectives revealed for the first time further details regarding the belongings Victoria had with her on that night, which were as follows. A black oval-shaped new-look purse with a zip fastener containing a house key on a distinctive fob with Vicky written across the top and Victoria down the sides. A Rimmel lipstick in a black plastic case, the colour of which was Zorro. The inner soles of one or both of Victoria's shoes had been fixed with sellotape. They also revealed they had some CCTV images taken from a camera the original investigation team had installed at the disposal site in Creating St. Peter, in the hopes that the guilty party may return to the scene. DC Inspector Miller said, quote, New information and lines of inquiry that were not previously known to us are being actively pursued by the major investigation team, renewing hope that Victoria's killer will be caught. By reissuing the images of Victoria's clothing and providing the additional information about some of her other belongings, I am hopeful that this may jog someone's memory who could have seen them deposited somewhere. I am also extremely keen to trace the people in the CCTV images in the field in Creating St. Peter. I would really like to know who they are and what they were doing there. If you provided information in the original inquiry, think back and come forward if there's more you can tell us, or if you did not come forward at the time with information you had, now is the time to do so. This was a horrific crime committed against a girl who was two weeks away from celebrating her 18th birthday. Victoria's adult life was just about to begin when she was torn away from her loving family, who have now been without her for a longer time than they had her. No one should have to experience the pain that they have. We now have another opportunity to obtain justice for Victoria and her family. The killer has lived with their guilt for the past 20 years and fresh information could make a significant difference 
to helping us solve this murder. It is never too late to contact us. She also revealed that fresh information had been received that was not previously known. Detectives made an appearance on that month's episode of Crime Watch, a UK TV programme in which police officers and presenters appeal for help from the public in unsolved crimes. The programme carried a reconstruction of Vicky's last known movements and went on to show, for the first time, the CCTV images from Creating St Peter. The first images were taken on a dark evening and showed only torchlights moving around the disposal site. It appeared as though there were four to five people looking around. Police appealed with help in eliminating these people. Were they armchair detectives looking for clues? Local kids looking for cheap thrills? The second CCTV footage was of more interest. It showed the blurred image of a man standing next to a white van near where the body was found. It showed a grainy figure getting out of the vehicle, walking around and then driving off at about 12.30pm on October the 7th, 1999, three weeks after Victoria's body was discovered. At the time, Suffolk Police did not follow up or identify the vehicle or the driver. This image seemed to reinvigorate the inquiry, and in the year following the reconstruction and release of the CCTV footage, more than 90 calls were received by Suffolk Police and dozens of leads were chased up. One of these calls provided some interesting information. A member of the public reported that the white van seen on the footage was identical to one owned back in 1999 by a man named Steve Wright, and that the man closely resembled his profile, weight, age and height. The name Steve Wright is notorious in the UK, where he is also known as the Suffolk Strangler. Over a six-week period, in the run-up to Christmas 2006, the dead bodies of five young women were found in Suffolk County. All of the victims had worked as prostitutes in the Ipswich area. Their bodies were discovered naked, but with no signs of sexual assault on any of them. Two of the victims, Annalee Alderton, 24, and Paula Clennell, 24, were confirmed to have been killed by asphyxiation. A cause of death for the other victims, Gemma Adams, 25, Tanya Nichol, 19, and Annette Nichols, 29, was never established. All five bodies were found between 5 to 15 miles from Trimley St Mary. Suffolk Constabulary quickly linked the killings of all these five young women and launched a murder investigation codenamed Operation Sumac. At its height, 650 police officers were involved in the inquiry and they received 10,000 calls with information from the public. Steve Wright, aged 48 at the time, was arrested on the 19th of December 2006 on suspicion of the murders. He came to the police's attention as one of several names given to them 
as a frequent visitor by sex workers in the red light district of Ipswich, amongst whom he was nicknamed, quote, Mondeo Man, or, quote, the silver-backed gorilla, due to his distinctive silver hair and stocky build. Further checks revealed that his DNA profile was on the police database after he was convicted of stealing £80 from a pub in 2001. His DNA profile matched forensic evidence found on all five bodies. This led to a very robust case against Wright and he was convicted of all five murders on the 21st of February 2008 as Suffolk Crown Court. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with the recommendation that he never be released. There was speculation that it was very likely that Wright was responsible for more than the five murders he was convicted of. After all, all five occurred in a six-week period when Wright was already aged 48. And the Operation Avon team felt he may well indeed have had something to do with Vicky's murder. On the 28th of July, 2021, a spokesman for Suffolk Police announced, quote, Police investigating the unsolved murder of a teenage girl from Trimley St Mary, which took place over 20 years ago, have made an arrest as part of the Operation Avon inquiry. In September 2019, Suffolk Police revealed that the case was now a live inquiry again and being fully reinvestigated by a new team of detectives after fresh information had been received that was previously not known. As a result of the work that has been ongoing for the past two years, officers have arrested a man on suspicion of murder this morning. He has been taken into police custody, where he currently remains for questioning. This individual is not someone who has previously been arrested as part of this inquiry. The person arrested was not officially named by police, but it was revealed that he was currently an inmate at Long Larton Prison in Worcestershire, which is where Steve Wright is housed. Part 5. Theories Over the 20 years since Vicky's murder, three main suspects have been investigated by the police. Her ex-boyfriend, Adrian Bradshaw, and now most recently, Steve Wright. Firstly, her ex-boyfriend fell under suspicion, but this investigation was very quickly dropped, as there was not really any evidence that he had anything at all to do with it. It's understandable that he was looked at, though. Figures for murders occurring in the UK in 2020 show that for a woman aged 16 or over, the most likely perpetrator is a partner or ex-partner, accounting for 35% of murders. For the remainder, 23% were killed by someone they knew, a friend or a family member, 12% by a stranger, and rather worryingly on the surface of it, 30% are unsolved. This number will of course, one would hope, decrease throughout 2021 as suspects are caught and charged. In the case of Vicky's ex-boyfriend, 
He was known to have been in the Bandbox nightclub on the night before the murder and spoke to Vicky during the course of that evening. However, he had a cast iron alibi for the following evening and no forensic evidence or evidence of any other kind was found to link him to the murder in any way. So how about Adrian Bradshaw? The original investigation team and particularly the officer in charge, Detective Superintendent Roy Lambert, were convinced that they had their man when they arrested and charged him with the murder. However, the evidence against him really was not particularly strong. They had circumstantial evidence that he was around the same place at around about the same time as Vicky would have been passing by, and that some soil was found in his car, that they argued came from the deposition site. His defence argued in court that it wasn't surprising he was found in and around about the same place at the same time as Vicky as he lived there and had also been out on the town that very same evening. Mr Bradshaw admitted visiting the site of disposal of Vicky's body but done so after her discovery in his role as a reporter at a newspaper he ran. And in any case, the soil could have come from numerous sources, according to the defence. It was a very weak case, and it seems surprising that the Crown felt it was sufficient to go to trial in the first place. The prosecution offered no motive, no witnesses, and no forensic evidence. It was hardly surprising that the jury took so little time in deliberation before coming to a unanimous not guilty verdict. At the time of Vicky's disappearance in 1999, Steve Wright was unheard of. It wasn't until the winter of 2006, some seven years later, that he began his murder spree in Ipswich, resulting in the deaths of five young women. In 2006, Wright was working as a forklift truck driver and was living with his partner right in the heart of the red light district of Ipswich. He was well known to the prostitutes there and admitted that he regularly visited sex workers and had done so for most of his life, a habit he claimed started when he joined the Merchant Navy shortly after leaving school in 1974. It was these sex workers amongst whom he lived and worked that he murdered. But is it possible he was a murderer long before that. Could there be other victims? Back in the late 80s, Wright lived in the heart of the red light district of nearby Norwich, a city some 45 miles away from Ipswich, and even ran a pub there briefly that was frequented by sex workers at the time, the Ferry Boat Inn. There was a cluster of sex worker murders in Norwich in the years before the 2006 murders, which have gone unsolved to this day and have been linked by some to Steve Wright. These include the 1992 murder of Natalie Perman, the 2000 disappearance of Kelly Pratt, and the 2002 murder of Michelle Bettles. One of the UK's leading criminologists, Professor David Wilson, was personally involved in the Steve Wright case regarding the five women murdered in Ipswich. 
When investigating the case, he felt the murders were far too practiced for someone murdering for the first time, especially as Wright was 48 years old in 2006. He then launched his own investigation into the Norwich murders. Michelle Bettles was strangled in March 2002 and her body was found three days later in Woodland by a lane on the outskirts of the city. Wright was well known to sex workers in Norwich, often meeting them there, and he was sometimes notably seen doing so while being dressed as a woman. Before her death, Michelle had told her parents that she had a friend that liked to cross-dress. Her parents did not know she was working as a prostitute in Norwich at the time, and Professor Wilson's investigation discovered that it was not in fact a friend of Michelle's, but a client. Michelle was a regular at the Ferryboat Inn and was last seen in the red light district of Norwich with plans to meet a client later that night. Her body was found right next to a stream which was very similar to how Wright had disposed of two of his victims in 2006. Commenting on the similarities between the Bettles case and the 2006 murders, Professor Wilson stated, quote, This is screaming out connection, connection, connection. There's no such thing as coincidence when you are dealing with a serial killer. Other academics have also linked the case of Michelle Bettles to Wright and have pointed out that it would be very unlikely for two serial killers to have been operating in the same area at the same time, using the same methods and disposing of the bodies in the same way. The police responded to the suggested links between Michelle Bettles' case and Steve Wright by saying that they had found no evidence linking Wright to the crime. 16-year-old Natalie Perman was seen soliciting clients outside the ferry boat inn on the 19th of November 1992. Her partially clothed body was found at 3.50am the following morning by a passing truck driver in a lay-by on the outskirts of Norwich and a post-mortem revealed that she had been asphyxiated. Forensic swabs revealed that semen was present in her body and on her underbody garments, and a DNA sample was obtained and loaded onto the National DNA Database. The subsequent investigation interviewed over 4,000 people, and 700 men provided samples for direct DNA testing, but to date, the DNA profile obtained from the semen has not been matched, despite a general search carried out with the National DNA Database. Professor Wilson stated that the murder appeared to be a, quote, carbon copy of the murders Wright later committed in 2006. Perman had been found two hours after her last sighting, partially clothed, and her body was dumped in a lay-by off a lane in the countryside, outside of the city. This lay-by was known as a dogging site and it is known to have been frequented by Wright. The police cross-referenced the DNA found on Perman's body in 1992 to Steve Wright's, but the test results were inconclusive. 
Kelly Pratt, a 29-year-old mother of two, originally from Newcastle, began working as a prostitute in Norwich after becoming addicted to heroin. She was last seen outside the Rose Inn pub at the junction of Queen's Road and City Road in the Red Light District on Sunday the 11th of June 2000. She has not been seen since and is presumed dead. She was seen talking on her mobile phone at approximately 11.30pm that night and was later reported missing by friends after she failed to meet them for a pre-arranged lift. Her mobile phone has never been found. At the time of her disappearance, Kelly was wearing a black miniskirt, black t-shirt and a light blue coat and was described as 5 feet 4 inches tall, of medium build, with fair hair that was shaved at the front and sides. Despite a major police investigation surrounding her disappearance, nothing has been seen or heard of her since her last known sighting. Officers took 270 statements at the time, and various lines of inquiry have been pursued since, but she remains a missing person to this day. Police spoke to the person who made that final call to Kelly, who informed them that she said she was with a punter. But the client she allegedly was with remained unknown, and no clues were found during a search of her accommodation in Loddon. In addition to these three unsolved Norwich murders, Professor Wilson also links an unsolved case from Ipswich to Steve Wright. Amanda Duncan vanished after talking to a man in a car on Portman Road in the red light district of the town on the 2nd of July 1993, a road that Wright was known to acquire his sex workers from and from where some of his victims were known to have disappeared in 2006. The 26-year-old has never been found and is presumed dead. She left two sons, whom were aged three years and nine months at the time of her disappearance. No one has heard from her since she went missing, despite intensive local and national publicity. At the time of her disappearance, she was described as white, five foot seven inches tall, of medium build, with fair hair, and she had a distinctive heart-shaped tattoo on her upper arm. Suffolk Police revealed she visited an address in London Road, Ipswich, at about 11.10, intending to buy drugs before starting work. She agreed to return and finalise the purchase after finishing work, and was then dropped off by car in Portman Road at 11.30. She was last seen at about midnight when she was speaking to the driver of a Ford Sierra, possibly green or blue, but the driver was never traced. When police later went to her home in Balliol Close, they said that they found an anonymous note threatening her life if she failed to, quote, pay up. They took 243 witness statements throughout the course of the investigation, identified 17 people of interest, and searched nine possible sites that her body could have been disposed of, including in the River Gipping, but they never identified any viable suspects or found their body. All of these cases were reinvestigated after Steve Wright's conviction, and with regards to the Norwich murders, 
a spokesperson for Norfolk Constabulary stated, quote, We have liaised closely with our colleagues in Suffolk and reviewed all the information regarding Steve Wright and our outstanding cases, including investigations into Michelle Bettles, Natalie Perman and the disappearance of Kelly Pratt. At this time, no links have been found. Clearly, if any further information comes to light and is appropriate, we will re-examine our files. Our investigations remain live inquiries and we always welcome any new information from members of the public in relation to any of these matters. The spokesperson did also acknowledge that they were unaware that Wright was a cross-dresser and stated that the information would be forwarded to the investigations team. In recent years, Steve Wright has also been linked to the notorious 1986 disappearance of estate agent Susie Lamplew. Her body has never been found, but she was officially declared dead in 1994. It is thought that she and Wright knew each other, having both worked on the QE2 during an overlapping period in the 1980s, with Wright serving as a steward and Miss Lamplew as a beautician. This link is currently under investigation. The similarities of the above Norwich crimes and that of the 2006 Ipswich murders is unmistakable. The victims were all sex workers, were all seemingly asphyxiated and found naked or semi-naked in rural locations, often in or near water. None of them showed signs of sexual activity other than Natalie Perman, but the semen found on her may or may not have been from the person that murdered her. Wright certainly seems to be a very good suspect, to say the least. If so, this would mean that he began his killing career by 1992 at the latest, at which point he would have been 34 years old, more in line with the statistical age at which serial killers begin, and then accelerated his murder spree towards the time of his capture in 2006. The murder of Vicky Hall occurred in 1999, placing it within Wright's killing window rather than seven years too early, as per based on his convictions. And the similarities around method of murder and disposal fit his pattern, as does the geographical data with Wright known to have been living in nearby Trimley St. Martin at the time of Vicky's murder. It has also been reported since the 2019 reinvestigation that the partial number plate obtained by the woman followed from the Bandbox nightclub the night before Vicky's murder matched 1,200 vehicles, and one of these potential matches was for a vehicle owned by Steve Wright at the time. But there is one key difference, of course. Vicky was not a sex worker, but rather a 17-year-old schoolgirl. Peter Sutcliffe, better known as the Yorkshire Ripper, was convicted of the murders of 13 women in the north of England between 1975 and 1980 and the attempted murder of seven others. Of the 20 known victims, around half of them were prostitutes picked up from red light districts, while the others were women he accosted in quiet residential areas, 
often walking home alone late at night. In the case of Sutcliffe, it was the vulnerability and isolation of the victim that attracted him. While prostitutes fulfilled this criteria, it was not exclusively prostitutes that he chose. Could this also have been the modus operandi for Steve Wright? Between Wright's arrest in 2006 and conviction in 2008, Vicky's parents told a local newspaper they had been visited three times by Suffolk police, who each time assured them there was no link at all between Steve Wright and their daughter's murder. That was based upon the work of the original investigation team, who felt they had already got the right man in 2001, but had been let down by the courts. It seems like the new investigation team, who began work in 2019, have a different idea, and they certainly seem to consider Wright as a person of interest, having taken him in for questioning in July 2021. Part 6. Conclusion At the time of writing, it remains to be seen what the outcome of questioning Steve Wright for Vicky's murder will be. Regarding the five murders he was convicted of, he replied no comment to every question and never at any point admitted guilt. Similarly, he has never admitted guilt in any of the other unsolved murders from the Norfolk and Suffolk areas and has remained tight-lipped in prison. Given this, it seems unlikely that he would change his tune now and start offering confessions. If the only evidence that the police have to link him to Vicky's murder is the grainy CCTV image from the disposal site and the fact he lived nearby at the time, then it's not likely that the Crown would view that evidence as sufficient to go to the enormous expense of conducting a trial, which would be based on only flimsy circumstantial evidence, especially as the person being tried is already serving a life sentence. While that would be of little comfort to Vicky's parents, nor is knowing that your daughter may have fallen victim to a serial killer. We have to hope that more solid evidence against Wright has emerged over the years, and it is based upon that that the police arrested him at Long Larton Prison. But guilt that is provable beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law and actual guilt are not necessarily the same thing. Taking the evidence into account, it does seem likely that Steve Wright murdered Vicky. He was potentially stalking around the bandbox area in his car and followed her from there, accosting her once she and her friend parted ways. Or he may have even seen her around the area previously and knew she lived nearby, so drove straight to Falconer's Way Junction to await her after seeing her leave the bandbox, knowing that she would be passing by alone. Perhaps he spoke to her for a short while before bundling her into his car, which would account for the several minutes passing by between she and her best friend parting ways and the screams being heard. It may have been the enormous publicity that sprang up in the wake of the murder of the 17-year-old girl that scared him off from such targets in the future. From then on, he focused his murdering intent on sex workers, the murders of whom depressingly, often go underreported. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, 
and with all we know about Wright now, it seems logical that he should have been a prime suspect at the time. The CCTV evidence of the person seemingly visiting the disposal site in Creating St. Peter was taken three weeks after Vicky's murder in 1999, but not released to the public until 2019, at which point the police said it, quote, wasn't available to them at the time. It's difficult to understand this statement, as it was the police themselves that installed the camera to potentially capture the culprit returning to the scene of the crime. It was a member of the public that linked the CCTV footage to Wright. Had the police made the footage available to the public at the time, and received the Steve Wright link then, in 1999, they could have linked it to the partial number plate information, which, while not damning evidence, would have narrowed the investigation in on Wright somewhat. It may also have prevented the subsequent murders that he carried out. But it doesn't require hindsight to see that the original investigation was flawed and Target fixated on one particular suspect who was admonished in court so poor was the evidence against him. It remains to be seen exactly what evidence the new investigation team have against Wright and it will remain so until such time as charges are brought against him if at all. Part 7. Aftermath In 2004, a brand new quarter of a million pound sports pavilion was built in Vicky's honour in Trimley St Mary and was named the Victoria Hall Pavilion. It would go on to be used by several sports clubs in the community, including fittingly the Trimley Red Devils Football Club, with whom her family were so involved. At the opening, Vicky's former school principal, Alison Fraser, said, quote, She is remembered as a smiling, polite and courteous girl. She enjoyed the company of many close friends and was active in school through charity fundraising and general sixth form activities. She was a lovely girl who will be greatly missed by her friends and teachers. At her memorial service, best friend Gemma told mourners, quote, I just want to say how much I will miss Vicky and would do anything to be able to just talk to her again. Many people will tell you we were inseparable. She was like a sister to me and I wish I could bring her back. She was my best friend and she'll be with me forever. Vicky's mother, Lorinda, said, quote, Victoria was as perfect as everyone says. We will miss her terribly. Our lives will never be the same and our death left a hole in our lives which will never be filled. But we are thankful for the wonderful 18 years which she gave to us. Hopefully the new investigation will bring the family and the community the closure that they deserve. If you're interested in learning more about the case of the murder of Victoria Hall, there's many websites and news articles that cover the case. If you have any information relevant to the case, get in touch with Crime Stoppers. 
Do you agree with my conclusions? Do you have your own theory? Email me at thesilentevidence at gmail.com Tweet me at thesilentevpod or comment on Facebook to let me know what you think. If you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting me on Patreon at www.patreon slash thesilentevidence and join me for the next episode of The Silent Evidence.